0: Amen. Well, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. As we hear the Lord promise us, change us, communicate Himself to us through His Word today. Matthew chapter 20. And I'm going to read from verses 20 through 28, but We're going to be focusing on verses 24 through 28 today, which is somewhat the second part of what we discussed last week. Christ preparing His disciples for Christian service, and thus preparing us for Christian service today. Please stand with me if you're able, as we read God's holy word to us, verses 20 through 28 Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with their sons kneeling before him, and she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able." And he said to them, you will drink of my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. This is our text today. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know how the rulers of the Gentiles, or that the rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Literally, deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, and God, I just pray that you would open our ears to hear you today, that as the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, that you would turn our hearts away from foolish and vain things to your word. I pray that we would anticipate to be changed by it, that we would hunger correction and rebuke, and that we would long to hear the gospel that is given to us today. Please, God, work by your spirit and make these things effectual for us, God, help us to cling by faith to your promises and to and to love you and love each other more in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. It's helpful for me to consider when we look at our text here today, the book of Acts as a whole. And the reason I say that as is, we have brought up before, the book of the Acts of the Apostles might be more appropriately described as the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in His church. And we see this in a, in a multitude of ways. As Jesus Christ ascended the mountain and fasted and prayed all night before He chose the twelve apostles, we see the apostles replicating that event to some degree in Acts chapter 1 as Judas has tragically killed himself and they go to the Lord asking him to choose from two brothers. We see it in the miracles that are wrought by Peter and Paul and not to go too long, just as an example. In Acts chapter 9, we see Peter going and raising a young woman, Dorcas, ...from the dead, which very closely resembles Jesus Christ's own miracle of raising a young servant girl from the dead. And if we have the right eyes, my point being, when we read through the book of Acts... ...we see it as a mirror of Jesus Christ's ministry and the continuing ministry of Christ through the church. Now, that's important for our text today because Christ is preparing the apostles for a time that will be cataclysmic for them. Jesus, within two weeks' time, maybe a full week, Jesus is going to be crucified. The disciples will be persecuted. They will be without the physical presence of their Master any longer. And so we see Christ urgently preparing His disciples for continuing ministry of the Word of God. So Jesus prepares His disciples here, and in our text today, He does that by exposing their sinful ambition. Maybe as a good thesaurus here, sinful ambition or jealousy or envy of the apostles and exhorting them to humble service. Maybe to say that another way, Jesus Christ in our text exhorts us to put off envy and jealousy... And to put on sacrificial service to one another. Sacrificial service to one another. So, first, I want us to see that we are to put off sinful ambition or jealousy or envy in verses 24 through 25. Now, it's helpful for us to take a step back and look at the context of what we're talking about And all of it is wrapped up in the gospel and what Jesus Christ is going to come and do for us or what Jesus is about to do for the people. We talked about last week in verses 17 through 19 that Jesus Christ for the third time predicts that He is going to Jerusalem and when He gets there, He will be delivered up. And you might remember twice. Delivered up from the the more central fold of the apostles, one of them would betray Him to the courts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And His own people, the Jewish people, would betray Him to the nations. And in that way, we see Jesus Christ delivered over to death. And all groups of people, Gentiles, rulers, people, even His disciples, bear the weight of delivering over the Son of God to death. He would do that. But we also saw that Jesus Christ was not just doing this in a way that would make us think of a misstep of justice in some way. But rather, Christ says that He is going to take the cup. And in another Gospel, Marks, He says He will be baptized with the baptism of the cross. That Jesus, in dying, is going to take upon Himself covenant curses. The covenant that we broke, Jesus will die under those curses. And here today, again, finishing this gospel context that the whole passage kind of floats in, we see verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the pinnacle of that is to give His life a ransom for many. That everything that Christ did, He did for the church He laid himself down for the church in every way, never doing something for himself, but always for his bride. But here we see the polar opposite in his disciples, don't we? We see James and John coming forward to to grab a hold of power. They see Christ coming in and it seems as if they think that he's going to be actually coronated. As king in Jerusalem, the pinnacle of the Messianic kingdom would come visibly and physically upon the people of Israel. And so we've got to hurry before we get there to make sure we got our seats. But this context that we have is a continuing one, isn't it? It's not as if this sin of jealousy and envy among the disciples is new. We saw it in chapter 18. If you want to turn there quickly chapter 18, we see Jesus patiently and lovingly exposing this sin to His disciples months ago, probably, in the timeline of the cross. Verse 1, it says, At that time, the disciples who came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a child, He put Him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, repent, be converted, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus shows us that the Christian way of looking at things and the way that the kingdom of God operates is actually to put ourselves in the lowest possible position. To esteem everybody higher than ourselves And to live for them. Now, this is the context that we have. Not just a gospel context, but the context of the disciples' sinful weakness. The disciples need to have exposed their sinful heart. Much like if we were to enter into war, full-blown warfare in the next coming months, and we knew that that would happen. We would probably recruit many young men and send them to training. And what would those drill instructors spend their time doing? Exposing the weakness in each one of those soldiers so by the time they got to the battlefield, they would be more equipped and prepared to do the job that they were sent to do. And that's what Christ and His His loving heart is trying to do. Prepare us and these disciples for Christian Service. Again, we are perhaps one week away from the pinnacle of all history. The cross of Jesus Christ. These men will be without the physical sense of their Messiah any longer. And within two months, 50 days, 40 days after His resurrection, He is going to be ascended into heaven and be without them. And He will pour out the Spirit so that the disciples may continue ministry. So we have to see this context put together so that we understand the flow that we are going for. And in our text, in verse 24, we see that Jesus first and foremost diagnoses the heart of the disciples. We see James and John come, try to obtain this high place in the kingdom of heaven, but then we see that the apostles, the ten, were angry. At the two. Now, we don't know if that anger manifested itself in nasty looks or words spoken. I would think it did. But we're not told. But Jesus, for sure, sees that these disciples are angry with these two brothers. And they're angry at them. We might say, well, maybe they're just angry at the sin that they committed. But it's pretty clear from the implicit reading of the text, that these disciples aren't angry because the two committed sin. It's because they didn't do it first. It's because they're going to be exalted as well. And as C.S. Lewis has said that we've brought up before, the most prideful people are the most angry when they see pride in other people. And that's true. True. When we see other people being proud and exerting themselves, we become angry mostly because we wish that maybe we were that bold to put ourselves in that position. And these disciples are angry because they were a step ahead of the game, it seems. They were angry, to say that another way, only because they recognized they had the same heart disease and they desired to have it fulfilled. They desired to have it fulfilled. But more than that... We see Jesus diagnose their heart condition by telling them that the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority among them. Jesus is implying here that that is the underlying temptation in the hearts of the disciples. They want to lord it over the rest of them. They want to exercise authority and to gain some esteem in the kingdom of heaven. They want to be served in the kingdom. Not to serve, they want to be the ones that are served in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as he diagnoses their heart condition of envy, wanting to be above everybody else, to be better than their brothers, he also shows them that they have the wrong paradigm of discipleship. That is, that they're trying to follow after the wrong example when they think about authority. Does that make sense? They're looking to the Gentile kingdoms and following how the kingdoms of the world operate and try to order their authority after that. And Jesus tells them very plainly that they are following the wrong pattern. But I want us to think about how painful that would have been to the disciples to hear. These are Jewish Men and women committed to following the Messiah and Jesus does not at all sugarcoat the sting that He tries to give them. You're acting like pagan Gentile kings. You're acting just like the world. You are acting contrary to the messianic kingdom that we read about in Psalm 72 today. The king that would come and give himself up and look for the prosperity of all, you're doing the opposite of that. You're acting like Caesar. You're acting like Caesar here. And so... As Christ exposes these things, I think that we should realize in verses 24 and 25, the Bible should speak to us as well and convince us that envy and jealousy, selfish ambition is exceedingly sinful. And I want us to be convinced first that selfish ambition, it wages war against our own souls. That is, envy not just destroys community, it destroys the individual that's involved in that sin. And part of the reason for that is it is inherently anti-gospel, anti-serving, anti-sacrificial, and it is in all of us. There's a desire in every one of us, I think the best word to say is to be better. To be better, we desire to be better in position. I, I don't know if you, any of you have read this. In England, I believe, they did a, a study a long time ago where they offered people a choice in their companies whether they would take more money as a bonus incentive or if they would rather have a better job title where they would get paid the same amount of money but they would have a, a job title that sounded more honorific. And many people chose. To have a better job title. Why? Well, because other people don't see what I make in my salary, probably. I want to be seen as better than my brothers and sisters. We desire to be better in esteem to the world, right? We, we hide our sins. We tend to hide our imperfections and our weaknesses and try to bolster and highlight the things that we're good at or that would make us seem better than one another, and in all of this, brothers and sisters, we follow after the world. We're being discipled by the world system that we try to climb the ladder to get to the top to be seen as something in the eyes of the world. And this comes out of our heart, doesn't it, in all of our actions. If that's our heart, all of our actions are going to be tactically inclined to doing things to make us appear better before one another, to climb the ladder of success. And as Ecclesiastes 4.4 4 says, what a tremendously convicting verse. The preacher says this, Then I saw that all toil and skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. Isn't that a penetrating insight? That's true. I... I It's true in our hearts, isn't it? You see, a skillful man in his labor, you can usually mark it down. It's because he desires to be better than his neighbor. And because of the the universal nature of envy in our hearts, it's a disease that that lives within us, that's been in us from the fall, because it's universal, is why the Scriptures speak so often and so clearly about our need to put it away. To kill it. And to put it to death. Now, as we've said, envy and jealousy are, by definition, communal sins, right? You, you can't have envy and jealousy in a vacuum where I'm the only being that exists. Right? They affect the broader community. But, even though the weight of the Scripture is on community and how envy and jealousy affect the community, there are very clear Scriptures they say that it, it affects the individual who is envious. I'll have you turn to a few passages. First, Proverbs 14.30. Proverbs 14.30. And again, in our text, it's clear that Jesus wants the disciples and us to see that envy is very sinful. And so, we want to do our job to look through the Bible and see how the Bible describes it as sinful... And how it destroys the person who is envious. Proverbs chapter 14. And verse 30. Notice. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But envy makes the bones rot. Okay. So. Notice that the the writer of the proverb wants to set up a contrast to us. The tranquil heart, that is, the content heart where God has placed him in reference to other people. It's tranquil. It's content where it is. What does that content heart do? It gives life to the flesh. And we know that, don't we? When we experience by God's grace a peaceful contentment about where God has us, As the Apostle Paul says, the peace of God that passes all understanding guards us, doesn't it? But, in contrast to that, envy, jealousy, makes the bones rot. Envy is not being content with the place that God has put us. Not being content with who is better than us in certain ways and who isn't but it consumes him, right? It makes the bones rot. It eats away at him. He wants to grab a hold and consume as much as he can get, but that actually affects the soul and making his interior rot. He thinks about it. It's consuming him that he wants to be better than his brothers. But even though envy affects us presently, that, that is a picture of the eternal state of all of those who will be in hell. That envy affects the sinner. And this is seen in Psalm 112. Psalm 112, a very powerful passage. Notice, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 only. This is talking about the righteous man in contrast with the wicked. Notice, talking about the righteous man, And notice how this thread of envy and contentedness. The righteous man, he has distributed, verse 9, freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Notice, his horn is exalted in honor. He is exalted. The righteous is put into a, a better place, ultimately exalted with Christ in heaven. Notice verse 10. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He sees what? He sees the righteous exalted. He's angry, envious. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So notice with me, brothers and sisters, the selfish ambition, it wages war against our own souls. It works to make us rot internally, presently, and if unrepented of, lived in, the state of all the wicked in hell is to look at the righteous And to be envious. And part of that is the torment that they experience. We're even told in the New Testament that unrepentant envy envy cannot coincide with a Christian profession of faith. That if we are content with our envy, that we refuse to repent of it, that we want to be better no matter if it costs us the Son of God. We are told in Galatians 5 that envy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul tells us, we'll turn there, envy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, when I say fruits of the Spirit, what I mean is the opposite of that, by the way. Works of the flesh. I I saw some eyes and I was like, now I understand, I understand. Forgive me, forgive me. Galatians 5, 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Notice this language, community. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sober warnings. All of us, brothers and sisters, struggle with envy in our hearts. That is a corruption that will be in us until the Lord Jesus comes and redeems our entire nature so that we do not have the presence of sin. But these warnings are meant, designed to implore us to put off envy because it's destructive first to our own souls. And we must be careful That in this, we do not deceive ourselves. We must not deceive ourselves because this is exactly what James says. And I'll have you turn there, James 3, and stay there because we're going to go on to chapter 4. James 3, we must not deceive ourselves. Verses 14 through 15, because James tells us, notice the strong warnings. We all have the roots of jealousy. James warns us. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't lie to yourselves. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Okay? Earthly, it's unspiritual... And demonic, but the weight of Scripture is on the fact that it corrupts the church of the living God, right? The church of the living God is is safe because of what Christ has done for her, but Christ works through his word and warns us not to be boastful and envious of one another because it is a cancer that eats at the grace of God the grace that is among us, the, uh, the fruits of the Spirit, we should say. That is, selfish ambition wages war on the church because that internal heart greed, it works itself out in fighting, in tension, in enmity within the church. And this is seen in James. Notice the next verse. Verse 16 of chapter 3. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, notice, There will be disorder and every vile practice. This is the absolute outcome. If we do not root out envy in our hearts, if we culture it and let it grow, it will come out. There will be vile practices and disorder. Notice verse or chapter four and verses one through two. He asks the question: what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions or your pleasures are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The testimony of Scripture, especially James, is very clear that envy cultivated in the heart works itself out in the life of the church and The church will be characterized by quarrels and fighting, but also murder. Now, whether or not that murder takes place physically or within the heart, it's little account. But if we look to the history of redemption, the history that we have in the Scripture, we see envy all the way through and how it ends in the murder and destruction of the peace of God's people we have to think no further than Genesis chapter 4, do we? Cain and Abel. As we see Cain rising up to kill his brother, but 1 John 3 gives us the apostolic interpretation of that. Why did he kill his brother? Because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were evil. God approved of Abel's offering and therefore Cain was jealous and he killed him. We see it in Joseph's brothers in the same book, don't we? That Joseph was loved by his father. Was given a a special coat and maybe special treatment. And Joseph was even given special revelation by God. Dreams that he would rule over his brothers. And how did the rest of those, um, those patriarchs react? They hated them. They hated him. And they could not speak peacefully to him. And they ended up not quite killing him. Maybe worse. Sending him to a foreign power to be a slave the rest of his days and then lying to his father that he was dead. Miriam and Aaron, as we discussed today, Brother Joey read before us that they see Moses as a man who's a prophet before God. Jealousy arises in their hearts and they attempt to overthrow Moses' ministry. We see it in Saul and David, right? As David goes and he he successfully wars for the... uh, the armies of God, and he comes back, and the women are dancing and saying, Saul has slew his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul, from that moment forward, seeks in his heart to put David to death. We see it culminate with the Pharisees and Jesus Christ. The Pilate says he knew that they delivered him up for envy. In the church, in Acts... The Sadducees are denominated in chapter 5 is that they were filled with jealousy against the apostles, so they put them in prison. This is a common thread that if jealousy is not rooted out of the heart, it corrupts the working of God's people. And our disciples in our text, envy is in their souls. Anger bubbles out of them and Jesus Christ warns them. And I... I think in meditating on this, if it were not for the restraint of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ intervening, we would not be surprised if even these disciples chosen by God would have murdered these two brothers so that they would not have the kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, first, we ought to see, we must see, we must realize and be convinced in our minds that envy and jealousy is exceedingly sinful to God. Exceedingly destructive to ourselves and to the church and the people that we love. Church splits, I think, are almost always because of envy. There are times where doctrinal reasons divide a church, but even in the midst of that, the reason why brothers and sisters can't get along and decide what should happen is because envy has grown up in the church. An overbearing and domineering pastor tries to shove through everything that he wants to be shoved through. He tries to dominate everybody. And church splits happen. It can happen from within the congregation. Schismatic men and women that want to divide the church. They want the authority of the pastor. And even though they know that they can't teach from the pulpit or they would never be ordained to such a ministry, they try to have that authority by causing problems within the church. And so, in sum... Envy is destructive to the church and to our own souls. And therefore, we must repent of it, see it in our hearts, and and put off jealousy by the power of the Spirit. But we also must put on something. Right? As Thomas Chalmers says in that wonderful sermon that if you haven't read, you ought to, the expulsive power of a new affection. It is not good enough. It's not Christian to just show us sinfulness and say, stop it. Okay? Okay? We must replace that desire for sin with a desire for something better. The desire for something better is to put on Jesus Christ to be like Him and to trust Him that He will help us in these matters. We must put on sacrificial service. And I I hesitate to put this in here, but I, I think it's important for us, especially in our culture, the disciples did not have a biblical view of what authority was here. They tended to think authority was a domineering, that's another way to translate it over, a domineering way of looking at their position. Now, that is a possible common misunderstanding that many would have this day, but in our culture, it's probably just a total despising of any kind of authority. How dare anybody tell me who I am or what I'm to do? How dare anybody have the goal to do any of that. Now, Jesus clearly in our passage shows the disciples that they're wrong and that self-serving authority is sinful. That they wanted to be at the top of the kingdom in order that other people would serve them. Okay? But, if we look through the pages of Scripture, we have to ask, is Jesus here repudiating all authority and saying that there should be no authority within the church? i would have to say, well, that cannot be the case. Why? Well, first of all, in two levels, congregants are told to submit and obey their leaders. So we see that there's authority there. But more than that even, maybe even clearer, is that Scripture very clearly tells leaders to, um, to use authority. For example, 1 Timothy 4.11 Timothy is told by Paul, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example of speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Now, we have a dual-edged sword there, don't we? He says that you must teach and command these things. You must use authority and even let no one despise you. Similarly, we have in Titus 2.15, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay? So we clearly see in Scripture that there is authority in the church, but we have to see that there's a right use of it. There's a right use and an attitude. And as we've been saying, it is never to be used for self, but the authority given to the church is always to be shaped after the authority that Christ used that He did it all for the good of everyone. He didn't use authority for Himself. He used it for you. For your good. And not only that, the Scriptures plainly teach that authority has to be used in a right manner. And I think that we're helped by the The apostolic example of this. So, if we come to this text and we say, well, if we're commanded to use authority, but it ought not to be domineering, how did the apostles, who are the chosen men to lead the church, how did they exhibit authority? I just want to turn to three passages in two books, looking at Peter and Paul. First, turn with me to 1 Peter 5. When we think about putting on sacrificial service, we have to ask, well, what does that mean? How is authority rightfully used by us, even extending to secular vocation, to our jobs, to our families, to our church? How is it to be used in a right way that's not self-serving? Notice 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ... As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that is among you. Notice, exercising oversight. We're told to have authority. Not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Notice verse 3. This is the same Greek word that is used by Jesus. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Notice what's put there. Not domineering over those in your charge, not trying to force your weight around, but rather being examples to the flock. And what's implied there is patience and leading in all things. But we also see Paul, and 2 Corinthians is the book I want you to turn to, and we see his example in two texts. And if you want more text than this, I have many, many, many notes about what the Bible says about this, and they're all very consistent. I just think these are the clearest. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24. Notice the heart of the apostle as he leads the church and as he th- talks about authority. I'm going to read verse 23 as well. Second Corinthians one twenty-three. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith. That's the same Greek word again. Domineer it, lord it over. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Notice how when Paul says lord it over, it's contrasted with the self-serving. We're not lording it over, but we're working for your joy, for your good. And then the end of the book as well. 2 Corinthians 13.10 I'm going to read verse 9. Paul says, For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Notice verse 10. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I might not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me, notice, for building up and not for tearing down. The right use of authority biblically, and there could be many sermons preached on this, is that we are not focusing on being served, but serving and building God's people up in the use of authority. And this power does not come from ourselves. So if we consider how we're to serve one another, Not just in the pastoral ministry, but one another together to put envy out of our hearts and to serve one another for our good. We have to realize that we are unable in and of ourselves to do that. We cannot just attempt in our own flesh, but we must put on Jesus Christ. And I want us to consider that because Christ tells us in verse 28, even as... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as an example for many. We look at the apostolic example and it is very worthy of our following. But how much more is it exhibited in Jesus Christ? And we might ask, did Jesus have authority? We'd say, of course He did. The authority of God in heaven. What a preeminent example that we have. What a wonderful consideration of the preeminent authority of Christ who is the Creator of the world and the Governor of it. That He made all things and holds all things together. But even as a man on this world, He claimed authority. How did He claim authority? He claimed authority to forgive sins. He claimed authority even on that last day to judge All men to judge the world. At his crucifixion, he rebukes Peter for cutting off the servant of the high priest's ear. And he says, do I not have the authority, this is inserting a little bit of interpretation, to call down twelve legions of angels to defend me? But he never used that authority for his own Sake, But always and only for the good of the people of God. And sometimes he was severe in his use of authority. He flipped over tables and drove people out of the temple. He called Peter Satan. Okay, I'm not saying that we ought to go around calling each other those things. What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve, and that is seen throughout His life, oh, and most preeminently, in the wonderful chapter of John 13. John 13. Listen to these words as Jesus Christ describes His authority and how He uses it. In John 13, 12-14, after He had washed the disciples' feet. Verse 12, "...when He had washed their feet," And put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, "Do you not understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord." And notice he says, "And you are right, for so I am. If then if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another 's feet. Jesus Christ used his authority to serve his people. And we certainly are to follow after His example. But the highest degree of His example is Him giving His life a ransom for many. We could read through this. He came not to be served, but to serve. And the pinnacle of that was Him giving His life a ransom for many. I know that we're, we're, I'm having you turn all over the place. I hope that's not distracting to you, but... A preeminent text here is Philippians chapter 2. Oh, we, we see here that we're to follow after Christ and what He's done, and it's seen clearly in His death. Philippians 2 and verse 5, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as Jesus does this, we have to ask, why would He do it? Is it merely to give us an example of how we ought to act? We say no. Certainly, He gave Himself as an example for us, but we ought to see the, wonder, the wonderful reality is that every action, every word, every thought that entered the Son of God's mind was for you and for your salvation. You are the righteousness of God in Him. That all of your envy that still exists in your heart, all of the outworking of that envy in your life has been totally and completely purged by the blood of the Son of God because never a moment in His life did Jesus try to exalt Himself to a position that He shouldn't have been in. Never did He try to take over, even in the physical church of the day, a place that was not for Him. But Jesus always submitted to what God had for him in the place that he had for him. He gave his life a ransom for many. All of your jealousy, all of your greed, all of your self-serving ambition was put upon this, the shoulders of the Son of God. All of your domineering attitude as Jesus didn't grasp for what was godly, try to hold on to his honor that he had as God, but came down for us All of your grasping after power in your home, in your work, and in your church was in the cup that Jesus Christ drank for you. We follow after Him. We we follow His example. Not to gain acceptance by Him, but rather we follow after Him because He's done all of these for us and it's credited to your account and thankfulness. We go and try to serve sacrificially because that's what He did for us brothers and sisters. He gave His life a ransom for many. Therefore, go freely and do it as well. But lastly today, we must trust Him. We must believe that everything that you will ever have through faith in Christ, an eternal inheritance, forgiveness, adoption, sanctification, all of these things are yours in Christ. He's given them to you freely. And I say that, brothers and sisters, for a very important point. I'm not just trying to tack the gospel into the message. I would ask you, brothers, sisters, how much of your jealousy and envy in your church home workplace, your domineering attitude over your brothers and sisters is due to the fact that you don't really believe that everything is yours? You see the connection there? We don't truly put all of our trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us and that outworks in our life. By I've got to grab as much as I can get right now. I've got to try to control it and and manage it here. We are so slow to put forth energy to believe that Jesus Christ has really given us everything freely in the Gospel. And because we doubt, we try to grasp at glory in this life. I know we brought up Adam and Eve a lot lately. Isn't this what Eve did in the garden? She distrusted what God had told her. And believed the hypothesis of the devil. That what God told you really isn't true. And if you take of it, you're not really going to die. He, just wants, he doesn't want the best for you. Right? We, we can still believe that lie a little bit in our heart. And because we do, we try to grasp it as much authority as we can get. We want to be better than others because we don't believe that we will be in the highest position in heaven. And we also must believe that in our attempts to serve one another, that He empowers us by the Holy Spirit to do it because He's pleased to give help to those who seek after Him. He's pleased to do it. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth to give great help to the one who seeks Him. He provides us a proper measure of the Spirit for serving one another. That is, Jesus not only declares you righteous, gives you an eternal kingdom, and calls you to believe it. He calls you to believe that when you go out to serve your brothers and sisters, He will make it effective. He will make it effective. No matter how you feel now, I don't feel like I can do that. I don't know if I have the emotional reserve to do that. He calls us to do it and promises empowerment. And I'll end reading from John chapter 7, the promise that Christ gives. John chapter 7. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the feast of booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I want us to think about what He says there. If anybody thirsts, come to Me and drink. And if we look throughout the Scriptures, this is a a picture of coming to Christ for the Spirit of life and eternal life. Believing on Him. But the result of believing on Jesus Christ for eternal life is that out of your heart or your belly in the King James will flow not a river... Rivers of living water. That Christ through His Spirit will work. And if you're skeptical of whether it's a spirit or not, verse 39 interprets that. Now He said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were about to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit is given in such a new way, such a greater measure in the church that Jesus even says... That it hadn't been given yet. And so, to sum up, brothers and sisters, we are called in this passage to see that jealousy and envy is a dangerous sin that must be put off for the sake of our own souls and for the church. But we're to put on sacrificial service. Knowing what true authority looks like. That it's not self-serving, but sacrificial And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we could ever accomplish those things. Believing His promises of sending the Spirit and giving us everything in the meantime. And so, as we turn to the Lord's Supper here, what what a picture we have of Jesus Christ's leadership and authority that He willingly offered Himself up by the Eternal Spirit. That He gave His own body to be broken for you. His own body to be broken for you. This is the opposite of a self-serving ministry. He serves us even by giving up Himself to death. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He Comes That this is a word given to us. A visual and sensory word given to us. And it's proclaiming something. It's proclaiming His death. That He, again, partook of the cup of God's wrath for us. And when we partake of it, we know that our sins are forgiven in Him. Therefore, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so we're called here as we partake of the Lord's Supper to look at the elements of the bread and the wine and not look into our hearts and say, I've been envious this week and therefore I cannot partake. But to say, I have been envious this week, but Jesus has drank the cup of God's wrath for me. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. And therefore, I partake. Hoping that Christ will help me to put it to death because He's put Himself to death for me. And so the question we have... Heidelberg Catechism, question 81. Who should come to the Lord's table? The answer, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. That's who's to come. But nevertheless, who trust that their sins are pardoned and their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves if you do not love Jesus Christ if you love your envy and your position that you grasp for yourself more than what Jesus has done for you let it pass but if you want it to be put to death and you trust Christ has done it take joyfully brothers and sisters because you partake of everything that Jesus Christ did for you brothers would you come forward